Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. Joined as always by my fellow staff writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. I have a question before we get to our guests. All right, ask away. All right, so I have a feature on Kyle Hendricks, on Cubs starter Kyle Hendricks going up on the site. And uh, I realized as I was following him this season and researching this story that I had severely underrated his performance up until this year when he became the National League ERA champion. And clearly he's among the kind of people who have baseball reference play index subscriptions. He's not underrated anymore. But, you know, he was, I certainly underrated him for a long time and I suspect many other people do. Now, my question is, if there had not been another six foot three inch sinker baller with a high 80s fastball named Kyle Kendrick, (laughs) who was that bad? Yeah. How different would our perception of Kyle Hendricks be? Like to the extent that Kyle Hendricks and I'm like, I just heard 2000 words and and had to change Kendrick to Hendricks about six times. I'm trying not to do it now. (laughs) So like, yeah, to the extent he's underrated, how much (laughs) of that is is Kendrick's fault? There was definitely a period where they blended together in my mind, maybe even a period where I didn't realize that they were two separate people. Because Kendrick came along years earlier Mm -hmm. and was established by the time Hendricks arrived on the scene, and because Kendrick was not very good, (laughs) that that definitely colored my perception of Hendricks. Definitely a real effect there, I would say. So that could have contributed to his underratedness. Well, I want to apologize to to both of them, to (laughs) Kyle Hendricks for underrating him and to Kyle Kendrick for unnecessarily slandering him after he hasn't pitched in the, well, I guess it's not slander if it's not true, for dragging his name through the the mud uh, a year after he's thrown his last major league pitch. All right. I will accept those apologies on their behalf. So later in this episode, we will be talking about the demise of Diamondbacks general manager, Dave Stewart, who was let go yesterday along with manager Chip Hale. It appears that Chief Baseball Officer Tony La Russa will also be demoted or reassigned or perhaps leave altogether, and the Diamondbacks will look outside the organization for Stewart's successor. So we'll be bringing on Diamondbacks beat writer Nick Picoro to tell us about that and all of the behind-the-scenes dysfunction that led to this move. But before we talk to Nick, we have another guest. Michael, how hard was it to line up this interview? It was incredibly hard. As Brad Pitt's Billy Bean once said, anything worth doing is. Tell him, Bauman. That's right. We are talking to Ron Washington, who is now back with the Oakland A's as their third base coach. Wash managed the Texas Rangers for eight years, won more games than any other Rangers manager, took the team to two World Series, and also had the pleasure or maybe the pain of managing the first ever AL wildcard game. Wash, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you guys for having me. So what was the attitude about the wildcard game at the time, since that was the first one ever? Did you feel as if it was the playoffs? Did it count the same way as making the playoffs, you know, by winning a division? Did you think this was a crazy idea to to play in an elimination game? No, it was a it was a tremendous idea and it did feel like playoffs. Yeah. And, um, you know, the only difference is, is uh, it's a tense moment because you want it out. You either win it or you go home. Right. And um, fortunately, you know, we didn't win it. Baltimore did. And, you know, when we first got into that game there, because, you know, we went to Texas and we just had to win one game out of four and they they swept us. And, And those four games, I mean, out of the four, I thought we had three of them won and they came back and got us. And um, so then we had to play it. 
and we was facing Joe Saunders. So, and we had always had good success against him. And we had Hugh Darvish going, who was throwing the ball well at the time. So, you know, the fact is, we won 93 games, and um, we missed winning the division or tying the division by one game. So we really felt good about ourselves, and um, you know, we just went out there and that one game, Baltimore ended up winning it. And so much of a, a manager's job has to do with baseball being played on over such a long period of time, you know, ma- managing egos over time, you know, keeping guys fresh. How much of a mental challenge is it to recalibrate yourself to throw it all in for one game? Well, I don't think you think like that as a competitor. You know, the fact is you're trying to get in the postseason. That is an opportunity to get in the postseason. And I'm more than certain there were 20 something other clubs that wished that they were in that position. And so we didn't think of it like that. We just thought of it just going out there, play our game. And if we play our game and do the things we've been doing all year, uh, we should be fine. Uh, it's just that, you know, from, from the first inning to the sixth inning, we both scored in the first inning. And then from there on, it was zero, zero, zero between Joe Saunders and you Darvish. And then they broke through and, um, you know, they bullpen shut us down the rest of the way. But I mean, you don't concern yourself with that. You just concern yourself with the fact that it's a ball game. Uh, we've been playing good baseball all year. Uh, we did have some success against Baltimore, especially Joe Saunders. And, you know, use that in a sense like, okay, we can go out here. This is our game. We knew we had to play nine innings and get 27 outs. And uh, they just put more runs on the board than we did in that process. And maybe I'm re-asking a similar question in a different way. But around this time of year, you hear so much about how a team got there. And this team is coming in hot. And this team is coming in cold. And this will give them confidence or this will take away their confidence. So you were coming in, you know, hoping not to have to play this game. And then you did have to play it. So does it affect how you feel or when that first pitch starts, does it just not matter how you got there? No, it does not matter how you got there. You know, you certainly hope that uh, you would have did a good enough job as a group to win the division and you wouldn't have to worry about that. And we certainly was in that position. But even though, you know, Oakland beat us out, we still had a chance to make the playoffs and we still felt good about ourselves. And if we go up in here, play our game, win this one game, then we get to play a five game series to begin with and then go into a seven game series. So, you know, we've been there before the prior two years. So, and like I said, we, we weren't a club that was overconfident in our abilities. We knew that all we had to do was go out there, and if we played our game, it was good enough against anyone. And we certainly felt good against Baltimore, as I'm more certain Baltimore felt good against us. And it, it feels like for a one-game situation like this, you know, having the better starting pitcher uh, would be a huge advantage. And obviously that didn't work out with you, with you, Darvish, but the next year when you guys were in the one-game playoff to get into the wild-card game, you guys faced David Price in the Rays. So... <laughs> You know, and and he threw a shutout, and and uh, the Rays won that game. So, how much can you dwell on that starting pitcher, uh, and you know, how big of a factor is that? Well, that starting pitcher is big, but on any given day, anyone can get beat. And as I said, we had success against Joe Saunders throughout his career when he was over there with uh, the Angels. So we really felt good going up into there. But he pitched a heck of a ball game. And you talk about David Price. We went through Tampa two years in a row and, and took him out. And David Price had no success against us. And in this one game when we played Tampa, he threw a heck of a game against us. You have to tip your hat. But it was Longoria that night that beat us. I mean, he just could not not hit the ball. I mean, he was hitting home runs. He was hitting balls in the gaps. I think he drove in five or six runs that night. So um, it was David Price pitching, and it was Evan Longoria stepping up like 
the big-time player that he is against us, and um, that was the difference right there. So to build on that, this is your entire season coming down to this one game, whether it's a wild card game or that playing game in 2013. And, you know, there's no time for the bounces to even out. You know, how much can you control and how much can you, you know, how do you try to, to reckon with the stuff that you can't? Well, all you can do is control what the game asks you to do on that certain day. And I think we did that throughout the whole year. Uh, whatever the game asked us to do, if we had to do it by bunnings, we had to do it by hitting and running, if we had to do it by running the bases, we had guys in that lineup that would get to hit the ball out the ballpark. Whichever way the game dictated that we had to play, we were able to play. And um, there's an old saying, pitch and stop hitting. And David Price stopped us, and Joe uh, Saunders stopped us. And um, that's the difference in a one-game playoff. You never know. You can have your best pitcher out there, but you never know on that day what pitcher is going to be able to execute his pitches consistently, do the things that the game asks him to do consistently. And it could be the best guy, and it could be the worst guy. It's always never the, the, the best team that wins. is the team that played the best that day. And Tampa played better than us in that one game, and Baltimore played better than us in that one game. It had nothing to do, I don't think, with the pitching matchups. They just played better baseball than we did. And because you were still trying to win the division down to the last day of the season in 2012, did you have to make any difficult decisions about lining up your rotation or starting this guy or that guy? Did it just work out that Darvish was the guy who was on regular rest for that wild card game? Well, it was Darvish in that wild card game against Baltimore. We had to make some adjustments uh, against Tampa because we threw Martin out there. Young kid, uh, first time in the playoffs. He's been pitching well for us down the stretch. And that's only because we was trying to win, and we had to throw the best we had out there at the time. And it got to the point where Martin was our call-up. But we was confident in Martin. You know, he's a ground ball pitcher. I felt like we were a very good defensive team as far as catching the ball goes. We didn't give up many, many balls that were supposed to have been outs that weren't outs. So um, it just was a matter of uh, who got the first break. And as I said, against Tampa, uh, Martin threw against him, and he just couldn't get Longoria out. He was the one that beat us the most. And against Baltimore, it was Joe Saunders that kept us off the board. I mean, we both scored runs in the first inning, and after that, zero was up until Jonesy hit a sack fly, and then McClute, I brought in Holland to face McClute in the situation, and uh, he gets a base hit, and that's two runs, and that's the way the game went. And so if you've got one game to win and your team and, and your opponent are relatively evenly matched, what's one area that you would most like to have the advantage? Would you rather have the better starter, the better bullpen? Would you rather have one or two guys who are swinging a particularly hot bat at the moment? Well, you hope to have all of that. You want your guys that are supposed to do the swinging of the bat, driving in the runs, driving in the runs. You want your starter to, to go as far as he possibly can, and you certainly want to have a bullpen that if you have a lead can hold it. And, um, you know, that's what it took right there other than the game against Tampa because they, they beat us pretty good. And would you be more in the school of, you know, you have to, to win the wild card game to get the division series, so you want to use your best guy? Or there's the other school of thought that says, well, if you do that, then you, you can't use him twice in the next round. And so you have to be thinking about the long term and the long run. And the, the goal is to win those games to get you to the World Series. Well, when you're in a one-game playoff, yeah, you're thinking about what you need to do right there. Mm -hmm. You worry about the other ones later because if you get past that one game, you got five games. But if you don't get past that game, you're going home. So, but in my situation against Tampa, we fought so hard just to maintain and trying to win that one game against Oakland. It didn't happen. And then, um, you know, in the, in the game against Baltimore, we were set up the way we wanted to be set up and it just didn't work out. But, uh, you really concentrating on what you have to do today 
You worry about that other stuff later. I can't plan for something that I may not have a chance to do, but I do have a chance to do something in this game today, and that's what you plan for. And did you think of your experience from the previous two postseasons as an advantage, or can you never really tell how a team that's there for the first time will react to that situation? Maybe it won't get in their heads at all. Maybe the experience won't be a benefit. Can you tell in advance? No, you hope that your experience uh, shows up in the way you just go out there and play and not try to force things. But um, you got to think about Baltimore when they beat us. They had J.J. Hardy, good player. Chris Davis was coming into his own. You know, Adam Jones was coming into his own. You got Weeders. McClout was having one of the best years he's ever had in his career. And, um, you know, they always could catch the ball. And so happened Joe Saunders stepped up for him. And once Joe Saunders stepped up, they had a pretty good bullpen. Darren O'Day, uh, Matus. And at the time, Johnson was saving for him. So, and, you know, he was vulnerable. He really wasn't shutting ball games down. And he was vulnerable, but he got the three outs they needed in that ninth inning. And this did, this wound up not being uh, an issue for you guys in 2012 or 2013, but if you lose game one of a division series, that's a body blow, but you live to fight another day. But, it, you know, in the wild card game, since there's no tomorrow, how much more willing are you to pull your starting pitcher early or to, or to throw your game plan in the, in the trash if it's not working and just sort of manage by the seat of your pants? No, you would have to do that. If your starting pitcher goes out there and you see that no matter who he is, if he's not getting it done, you have to cut it off. You got to cease it right there. You got to try to keep minimal damage down to give your guys a chance to get back in the game. You know, Darvish gave us almost seven innings in that game against Baltimore. It wasn't like they were hitting them all over the park. It's just that in a couple situations, they got some base hits to score some runs. But he almost gave us seven innings, and Joe just about just got the six, mm -hmm. even though they were beating us. So as we got deeper in the game, we began to figure Joe out a little bit. But then once again, they had a pretty good bullpen that could come in and shut things down, and that's what they did. But Darvish gave us what we needed. He almost gave us seven innings. And, I mean, he only gave up two runs. I mean, um, I think he gave up maybe three or four hits, maybe five. So he, it wasn't like uh, they were beating him up. But you're right. If you put your starting pitcher out there and it doesn't look like he have it today, you can't wait even though he's your best. You can't wait. you got to do something to stop it right there and keep your team in striking distance. So it seems like this time of year, there's always someone who makes the suggestion, you know, some writer who will say, well, you got to win this one game, it's win or go home. So do something really unorthodox and, you know, use your bullpen, do a do an all bullpen game, you know, start the game with your closer and, and have all your best relievers go two innings apiece and really shut down the other team. And maybe statistically that makes sense. Are there baseball reasons why it, it doesn't? Just because they're bullpen pieces. I wouldn't want to go into a playoff game and say, okay, we're going to have a bullpen day today when I got a starter that I feel like can get us at least six innings, five, six innings, and then I can get less out of my bullpen. But uh, I wouldn't think like that. That's why you have starters and that's why you have bullpen pieces. I mean, I'm trying to win a game, and these guys that start are the guys that took the ball daily that got us there, and um, I feel comfortable with them out there knowing that they can give me innings. And if they don't, and I have to go to the bullpen in the second inning to stop stuff, then we go to the bullpen. Then it becomes a bullpen game. But in the beginning, it won't be a bullpen game. It's my starter taking me as far as he can go, as long as he keeps us around, and then go to my bullpen when it's necessary. And, you know, apart from something like that happening, your, your starter getting knocked out early, is there, you want to play your own game, you know, when it matters most, but is there anything else unorthodox that, you know, you thought about, you know, maybe this is the time to, to try something unusual that you'd want to break out in a, a situation like this? 
I mean, sometimes, you know, you've seen managers use a player in a ball game and in, in the playoff game that hadn't uh, really played a whole lot during the season. But during the last run before you got there, this guy was hot. And you might see that. But, you know, I, I just don't see we all as a group. I'm talking about every team. They got starters and they got starters that they believe in. And if they didn't believe in them, they wouldn't be where they were to have that opportunity to play in the playoffs. So I could see something on that order where you might have put a player up in there and took somebody out and you have to question, you get questioned by the media because why isn't so-and-so-and-so starting? Because, you know, as a manager, you got to feel that this guy will provide us a spark that we need. And that way you make that, that difference. Other than that, uh, you try to stay status quo going into the playoffs. You want to try to not cause any unnerving feelings to your players because, you know, all year you've been one way and then all of a sudden you change, they feel that. And you don't really want to do that. You want to try to make them feel like, hey, we we can continue to do what we're doing and be successful. Mm -hmm. And are you at all generally just, you know, in postseason play at any point, are you more willing to go to the bullpen early just because innings are still important, but you do have more off days. And so you can use your best relievers more often than you can during the regular season. You don't have to worry quite as much about guys getting overworked. So are you more willing to kind of, you know, bring the starter out before he's facing the, the order for the third time and that sort of thing? Well, I don't think you got on your mind overwork. I think you paying attention to the offense on the other side, how they're attacking your, your pitcher. How well is your pitcher getting you through those innings? Is he laboring? Is he starting to get the ball up? Are they starting to make loud sounds with that bat? I mean, things like that. You have to monitor. And if you see that maybe he's don't have it, of course you'll make a quick move. But you have to give him a chance to get through what he has to get through and help the team. But once again, once you notice that he's, he don't have it, you have to make a quick hook. And um, I think sometimes in playoffs you've seen quick hooks, especially when you're playing a, a one-game playoff, you you got to make quick hooks. And as someone with thousands and thousands of games of major league experiences as a player, coach, and manager, you know, you've managed a Game 7 of a World Series. How different is that one-game put-up-or-shut-up uh, environment than even the elimination game for for a best of five or best of seven series. Well, it's a it's a difference because this is the last game of the baseball season, and the one thing as the manager that you try to do is you try to make sure that your troops are calm. You try to make sure that they're going to follow your lead, and if you walk around antsy, you walk around looking like you concerned, then you know that that definitely gets into them, and. Um, I think that's the main thing you have to concern yourself about is not making your players feel like you're concerned because if you're not concerned, then they won't be concerned. And after, you know, after that game six against the Cardinals, I wasn't concerned that uh, we lost the game. I was, I, I mean, it hurts that we didn't win it because that would have meant that we won the World Series. But when that game ended, the only thing that hit my mind was I got to, I'm going to go up in here and I got to calm my troops down. I got to make them understand that. In the World Series, there's two champions, and there's always a possibility of a seventh game. And here's the seventh game. So just because we lost tonight, we're not eliminated. You know, you want to keep your, your players calm, but how did you feel internally, even if you, even if you couldn't show it? Well, I, I felt, uh, you know, it's hard to explain. I know personally we had another game to play. I've been in the game too long to be concerned about. Now, if that was it, it would hurt even more. But it hurt, but I have to deal with the hurt. And I just wanted to go up in there and, and show my players how to deal with the hurt through me. 
And we did. And we came out in game seven, and we had a chance to really open that game up in the first inning. And, um, you know, we just didn't do it. But through me, I just wanted to make them feel that uh, we're okay. We're okay. Just just get your rest tonight. Come back tomorrow. Prepare the same way we've been preparing. And we're going to go out here and take this thing. And as a manager, do you even, you know, secretly feel that there are certain guys you want up in those spots more often than you would in a regular spot? You know, no no player plays enough single elimination games in his career to say, oh, this is definitely a guy who comes through in those situations. But obviously you probably want your best hitter up in the most important spot. But are there guys that just because you're around them all the time, you know them in a way that fans don't, you think this is a guy who is not going to give a, in a bad way? in this situation of course but there's nothing automatic in the game of baseball you know there's nothing automatic the pitcher is out there trying to get you out the defense is out there trying to get you out there's nothing automatic you like to have your best players come up all the time when a good situation arrives but it doesn't work out like that all the time so you got to have belief in every single person in that lineup and you know it snowballs you got to believe that the seventh hitting guy can get the job done and you got to make them believe that you got to believe that the night guy will come through because why? Nobody ever believes he will, but then he does. And there's been MVPs that's been in those situations that nobody thought could do anything and end up being MVP of the World Series or the playoffs. So you never know in the game of baseball, and that's the beauty of it. You got to play it, and you never know how things going to come out. Uh, you may have dominated someone. But then you know what? The odds say that it's time for that tide to turn. So you just don't know. You just got to make certain that you focus and continue to do the things that you know you're capable of doing, and the results will happen from there. And last question. By the time you get to this point, you've been playing baseball for so long, no team is fully healthy. Even if a guy's not on the DL, everyone's nursing some sort of injury or fatigue, and the manager knows about those things. And Often at this point in the year, there are guys who maybe aren't used as much as fans or commentators think they should be used. And then later you find out, oh, he was nursing some sort of injury. So how much of a factor is that for most teams or or teams you managed? You know, did you have a long list of, oh, this guy's got issue X and this guy's got issue Y? Or when the playoffs start, do you get sort of a a postseason adrenaline kick in and suddenly the the fatigue doesn't matter as much anymore? Well, fatigue doesn't matter once you get to that point anyway. Injuries and aches and pains, you're always going to have that. You have that all the way through the year. So that part of it is not a concern. And I can guarantee you the players that are in that locker room, they don't care about their aches and pains. All they care about is going out there trying to put forth the best effort that they can to win a World Series. And you're right. There's injuries in the background that the media does not know about. And, yes, there's some guys out there playing that are hurt. But uh, you in the World Series. This is what you went to spring training in February for. And you went through the whole season for. So, you know, long as it won't injure you where, you know, your career could be over, you deal with it. And if you ran a 4-1 down the first base and now all you can do is a 4-3, I'll take that 4-3. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you're a guy that used to be able to cover the gaps uh, real good, but uh, you still can get the jump off the bat, okay, we know he's going to be a little slow there. And on the defensive side, you make some adjustments where I may have to help you on this end. You help me on that end. We may have to do things like that to, to help whatever is aching people. I had Hamilton. He had a groin. Yeah. Through the playoffs, through the whole playoff, he had a groin. And we were waiting for him to come through for us because we knew at some point he would, and he did. And uh, but, but we had other teammates that picked him up, and that's what good teams does. So one guy that might be one of your biggest guys is, is dealing with an injury, 
Well, we got you, man. The, the fact that your presence and that you're in the lineup and you're out there, that's all that matters. We will pick you up, and then we'll wait for the time that things happen for you. That's the way you think. Are managers more secretive about those issues at this time of year? You know, like in April or May, maybe you'd mention it to the media in your press conference, but you don't want to now because you don't want the other manager to know that someone is hurting or unavailable? Well, this t- at that time, you go by the book. You only uh, reveal what you have to reveal. That's uh-huh. the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you go by the book. I'm only going to give you what I have to give you. What I don't have to give you, you don't need to know about. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ash. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, before we talk to Nick about the turnover in the Diamondbacks front office, let me take a minute to tell you about today's sponsors, starting with Indochino. I had to wear a suit last week for the first time in a while. It's not an everyday occurrence for people in my line of work, but I went on MLB Network, so I had to try to look good, except that I was on a panel with Tom Verducci, just a few feet away, perhaps the best dressed man in baseball. I looked okay, but I didn't look Verducci good. And maybe the reason was that I wasn't wearing a made-to-measure suit. Every man looks better in a suit, sure, but there's a big difference between made-to-measure suits and the generic off-the-rack suits. Indochino is one of the largest made-to-measure menswear brands. They're making it easy for men to get great-fitting, high-quality suits and shirts at an incredible price. And here's how that works. You visit Indochino.com, or you drop by one of their nine North American showrooms. You pick from hundreds of fabrics and patterns. You choose your customizations from lapels to pleats to jacket linings and more. You can get as detailed as you want. You submit your body measurements. Be honest if you want this thing to fit. And you kick back, relax, and get ready to step into the best, most stylish suit you've ever worn in just four weeks. This week, our listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $389 at Indochino.com when entering MLB at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit, plus shipping is free, and your satisfaction is guaranteed or your money back. So that's Indochino.com, promo code MLB for any premium suit, just $389 with free shipping. You'll never have to worry about badly fitting suits or expensive trips to the tailor or being outdressed by Tom Verducci again. Indochino, get ready to look like a million bucks. And I also want to tell you about Tommy John. Not the former pitcher, not the type of surgery. This is the sort of Tommy John you can wear. Now look, maybe you got that Indochino suit. What are you going to wear under it? You can't go commando in your $389 suit. And yet wearing many types of underwear means experiencing that awkward discomfort brought on by bunching, pinching, sagging undergarments. Wow, this podcast is earning its explicit tag today. That discomfort is something no man should have to endure. And thanks to Tommy John, we don't have to. Tommy John is the 21st century men's underwear brand that's redefined comfort for guys everywhere, myself included. I don't want to make this awkward for anyone, but I'm wearing Tommy John right now. Every pair is crafted from ultra-light, breathable fabric, specially engineered to cradle your goods softly yet securely. Goods is a very polite way to put that. The legs never ride up, the waistband never rolls down, their patented design even makes it impossible to get a wedgie. I haven't actually tested that, but I believe it. I've worn many different underwear brands trying to find the perfect fit. There's simply nothing like Tommy John. Their undershirts go on like a second skin and never come untucked, and their socks stay up all day. Nothing worse than a sagging sock. Plus, all Tommy John underwear is backed by the best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free, guarantee. So get with the times, fellas. There's a whole world of comfort out there you're missing out on. Use code MLB at TommyJohn.com now for 20% off your first order. That's code MLB for 20% off at TommyJohn.com. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. Okay, so in post-regular season regime change news, the Diamondbacks have fired their GM, Dave Stewart, as well as their manager, Chip Hale. 
These moves were not completely unanticipated, or at least one of them certainly wasn't. But to get the details on how this went down and what is still unresolved in Arizona's front office, we are turning to Nick Picoro, who is the Diamondbacks beat writer for AZ Central Sports. Hey, Nick. Hey, guys. How's it going? All right. So what has yet to be resolved? Because the Diamondbacks had a very confusing front office structure, which maybe was one of the reasons for their struggles over the last couple of years. So some of that structure is now gone. Stewart's gone. Hale is gone. Tony Larusa is still around in some capacity. And of course, ownership, which was responsible for hiring all these people who were just fired, is also still around. Right. So to what degree is change actually taking place here? Uh, it's it's going to be a lot of change, it sounds like. Tony Larusa is still here, but it sounds like even if he comes back, it's not going to be in the same kind of capacity that he was in as chief baseball officer. So he's, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure if he's going to come back or not. It sort of sounds to me kind of like, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago when Kevin Towers was fired and there was like a period of, I don't know, 48, 72 hours where it sounded like he was going to come back in some sort of role and then decided yeah. against it. That's sort of what it sounds like here. Like maybe there's a chance Tony comes back, but I kind of doubt it. But but we'll see. You know, they, they talked today about you know, finding a, a new general manager. Um, I don't think they're going to hire a new president of baseball operations or a new chief baseball officer or whatever. I, th I think that they're going to have a more traditional type of situation. And it sounds like they're uh, willing to, you know, kind of change directions pretty drastically from what they were doing. The last couple of regimes, they sound more open to analytics and, and they sound, uh, yeah, I mean, they don't, they don't sound like they're going into this with a particular idea in mind. I think they're going to let the candidates that they interview sort of guide the process. And that was sort of what I was curious about is, you know, obviously it's too early to tell, you know, what kind of candidate they might be looking for, but, you know, it's whether there was a specific direction they wanted to go or whether Stewart and Hale were, you know, they just realized they weren't working. Like, is there, do you have any sense whether, you know, the, the ownership or, or Derek Hall wants Tony La Russa to, to stay or, you know, in, in what capacity? It's hard to say i mean i i feel like with tony it's it's a delicate situation because he's such an icon and such a legend that i don't think that they want to look like they're just sort of kicking him to the curb or, or don't value what he can bring to an organization but at the same time i think they've just kind of come to the conclusion that this wasn't working so i mean i i, I guess that you know from what they were saying they are uh, they're kind of talking about a, a person with a little more experience in the front offices and in the roles directly under a GM if it's not necessarily a, a specifically experienced GM, but a, a person who, who, you know, I think he, I think Derek Hall mentioned has some experience with roster construction, someone with, with some fluency in analytics. So, it, you know, it just kind of sounds like they're, they're willing to go more in the direction that a lot of other organizations have been going for the last five to 10 years, if not longer. So do we know what it was that caused ownership to lose confidence here finally? Because, you know, if you read the internet, people have been calling for Dave Stewart's firing from just about day one, but ownership stuck with him for a while. So was it a specific move that was made? Was it just as simple as the Diamondbacks lost a lot of games this season? Was it any report that came out about problems or, or was it just an accumulation of those things? I don't know and, uh, you know, a 100% accurate answer on that. I, I think that certainly the wins and losses were probably the biggest thing. I think that 
you know, they just, they were expecting a whole lot more out of this team and they didn't get it. And I, I, I think that's probably the, the biggest thing. I, I did hear some, some comments over the last few weeks of, you know, just some of those stories that have come out, including the, the story that Keith Law wrote, kind of tearing apart a, a lot of different parts of the organization, um, being something that, you know, maybe grabbed, grabbed some people's attention in the organization. You know, and obviously there's certain parts of that story that people in the in that pre, in the, the most recent regime uh, would dispute, but you know it did kind of cobble together a you know a narrative of of an organization that is doing things that is not really in lockstep with the way that the other 29 teams are doing things. So I imagine that was that was probably a factor as well. And to what extent do you think, because to, to me, and even as someone who's been fairly critical of, of Stewart as a general manager, like he wasn't the problem from where I was sitting. Like, you know, this is about Tony LaRusse's inexperience managing uh, an organization, or even you look at Derek Hall or Ken Kendrick and some of the, their uh, periodic intemperance, I think would be a, a delicate way to, to say that. <laughs> like, to what extent is this shipping out the baseball ops department? And to what extent do you think this might cause ownership to look in and see that, you know, maybe examine some of the larger structural issues at work here? Well, I mean, I kind of asked a question along those lines, I guess, at the at the press conference, you know, just asking if they think that the decision making structure is sound, especially in, in regard to some of the reports that have come out in recent weeks of ownership shooting down, you know, certain things that the front office wanted to do. You know, they, they, uh, Kendrick gave me a, a very terse one word answer and, and said, yes, he thinks that the, <laughs> that things are sound. Uh, Derek Hall kind of expanded on it a little bit and said, you know, in any organization, anytime there's big decisions that need to be made, everyone's going to be looped in and, and that's the way that it works. Well, I mean, I think that that's certainly true, but I also think that, you know, when you're talking about a group that's going to be going on their, their fourth general manager, in the past six years, there's a lot of skepticism in the industry about the way that things work here, and I, I, I think it's it's understandable, right? I mean, if you're a if you're an executive in a in a good spot uh, with another club, if if you're a uh, you know whether it's an assistant GM or or someone who's kind of whose name is on that GM candidate list that you know seems to always be floating around out there, um, I I think that those people are probably going to have some reservations about what's going on. Here. Here and whether this is a spot that they want to step into, and I, you know, I've talked to people that you'd consider, you know, the the next wave of GMs, and you know, guys like looking at it and saying, well, you know, Josh Burns is one type of executive, Kevin Towers is another, Dave Stewart's another. We're talking about people that are very philosophically different and have very different temperaments. And, you know, they wonder, like, how, how am I going to succeed if, if those guys haven't? Like, how am I that different from them? I, I think that it's a, it's a very widely held skepticism around the game. And we, we saw that several years ago when the Orioles took months and months to hire a general manager just because nobody wanted to work for Peter Angelos. Like, this, you know, this might be more of an obstacle than even just finding the right person to fill the void. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I, that was, that's a definitely a good example. But, you know, I think the other thing is that we probably 
probably should keep in mind is that there's only 30 of them. You know, I mean, it's cliche, but there's just not very many of these jobs out there. And people are confident in themselves and, you know, would, you know, lots of people would jump at this opportunity. And I'm sure lots of people will. I'm sure they're going to get a talented person, but, you know, are they going to get like, I don't know, Ben Sherrington or Alex Anthopoulos or would a, a GM in a, in a spot that might, you know, might consider a, a lateral move for, you know, a bigger title or something? Well, like Neil Huntington, it would surprise me if people like that would be willing to come here given the baggage. And did you get the sense it's, it's hard to know exactly how a front office works behind the scenes, but was it mostly that they were sort of collectively making bad decisions, but all being on the same page? Or was it often that they weren't on the same page, that they disagreed about which way to go because maybe there were too many people in positions of authority or their responsibilities weren't clearly delineated? You know, when this front office came in, there were reports about other teams being confused, like, who am I supposed to talk to? Who's in charge here? And then there was the recent letting go of Dejan Watson who was, what, the senior vice president of baseball operations. And it sounded like that was maybe an ownership decision. But I think you also heard from sources that there were squabbles between him and the farm director. So was there a lot of dysfunction going on here from what you could suss out? Yeah, I, th- I think it was, I think there was some dysfunction. I think it was just kind of a disjointed group in a lot of ways. You'd hear stories of Dave Stewart telling teams that he would be willing to do a particular deal with certain players. Teams would talk about those players, and then they'd come back, and Stewart would tell them, well, you know, it turns out we can't really do that. So it just it just sounds like there were a lot of different, you know, voices being heard. And, you know, I, I think that ownership also played a part in it. You know, when you look at the fact that, you know, the Zach Greinke signing was really done almost unilaterally by those guys that, I don't know, I mean, it could be some revisionist history, but, you know, you do hear some people say that this front office would have been okay going into next year, I'm going into this year, I should say, you know, making small incremental upgrades and, and kind of trying to build gradually rather than take that big leap forward. Uh, you know, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. The, the baseball operations department seemed pretty proud of themselves at the winter meetings after they had signed Granky. They seemed pretty excited and pretty bullish on things, even after the Shelby Miller trade and the reaction to it. But it is fair to wonder, you know, would if you would have gone to those guys on October 1st and said, here's $200 million to spend, do with it as you please, would they have come away with, with Zach Greinke or would they have spent the money differently or would, you know, would they have said, let's, let's not invest it this way. It's, it's not, it's not the wisest thing to do. One of the weird things about this is that, you know, it obviously takes a disaster like this to convince a team to clear house the way the Diamondbacks seem to be doing. But this was a team that, you know, if AJ Pollock doesn't get hurt, if, if Greinke pitches up to expectations, if Shelby Miller is even just bad instead of what he was, you know, this is probably a 500 team and none of this is happening. No, I look, I agree. I, I mean, I think that was kind of one of the weirder things about the press conferences. We kind of were asking for different examples of what exactly led to it. And we kept getting told that wins and losses were a big part of it. And that, you know, I think one of Kendrick's quotes was, he didn't feel like things were trending in the right direction. And I don't know. He's I mean, I probably I, right. But. Yeah, he's, he's probably right. But like, I mean, it's also, you know, 2014 had a lot of injuries. They made a similar change and all of a sudden they kind of got back to being a respectable team in 2015. And you kind of feel like that's what will end up happening next year. If Pollock stays healthy and Miller and Corbin and Granke kind of return to the form that they had before. And, you know, maybe they get a few relievers to kind of step forward and, and pitch better. You could definitely, 
definitely see it being a, an interesting club. I mean, also there, and there's other things that they need to need to address. I don't think Yasmani Tomas is probably a National League player, or at least not an outfielder. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, with the with a few moves here and there, they can be a contending team, or at least you know, kind of a. Uh, if everything goes well type of contending team, sort of like the, you know, maybe like the Mariners were this year. But I think the most interesting thing is, you know, what they end up doing going forward. Like, it didn't sound like they were completely against the idea of maybe rebuilding things. And, and, you know, like I mentioned, they're going to kind of let the candidates kind of decide the path from what they were saying. You know, it it sounded like they uh, they don't really have an idea of exactly what they want to do. And they want to hear what the what they have to say, you know, whether the person that they hire, I think, is going to have the ability to sort of dictate what they do going forward. And maybe that includes tearing it down trading Zach Greinke and and trying again in a few years or or you know maybe the other maybe they think they really can contend next year and from being in the clubhouse every day and talking to players either on or off the record and overhearing conversations do you get a sense that the widespread outsiders consternation about the Diamondbacks front office or lack of confidence in the Diamondbacks front office filtered down to the clubhouse like do the players, you know, read Keith Law's report and say, gee, I'm working for a dysfunctional organization? Or do they not really care because they're focused on their own performance and their teammates' performance? Um, I would say most of them don't pay a ton of attention to that stuff. And most of them, um, it's such a young team. They had one of the youngest teams in, in baseball. They're not really you know, well-versed in that stuff. There were definitely players, though, that that saw what was going on and and recognized that, you know, they weren't getting the value they should have been getting for certain things or, or couldn't understand why Tomas, for example, was playing right field and, and playing as much as he was and how, how they couldn't realize that that guy, you know, shouldn't have been an, an everyday player in the National League and how much that was hurting their pitching staff, you know, things like that. But I don't think that most of them kind of had the same opinion on it that the rest of the, or much of the rest of the industry did. Mm -hmm. And I guess the danger here, the the unfortunate possible fallout from this is that maybe the Diamondbacks now hire a GM who looks like every other team's (laughs) GM, right? Which is usually a white male, you know, Ivy League educated, knows stats, that sort of thing. And every GM is starting to look the same. And you kind of worry about people with other backgrounds being excluded. And so, you know, Stewart was one of the few very senior African-American executives with the team. And he, of course, kind of came from more of an old school background in that he was a player and, you know, maybe the agent background is not old school so much as just an entirely unique school unto himself. But was there any way in which the Diamondbacks not being in lockstep with the other 29 teams helped them? Because, you know, in theory, like you'd think there could be an advantage to not approaching the game the same way every other team does. But maybe it's just that in this specific instance, the backgrounds or the inexperience just didn't lend itself so well to to running baseball teams. They also just fired. You know, Watson was one of very right. few mm-hmm. people of color at that next level down who mm-hmm. might be interviewing for a GM job. Yeah, I, I mean, nothing comes to mind in terms of how it might have it might have benefited them. <laughs> I mean, they really. I mean, their their track record in terms of trades and transactions was pretty mixed like most teams you know I mean I I think that they took chances on on a bounce back guy like Gene Segura and it really worked out you know they thought that they had a guy who was on the rise in Shelby Miller and that didn't work out but I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, can you think of any examples of things that that really? Uh, I don't. I don't know of. of how, I mean, they left draft money on the table. I don't see how that could be advantageous. Yeah. They, 
you know, went all in internationally on, on one guy instead of kind of loading up on a, on a bunch of others at the same time and, and wound up having to essentially sit out two periods, one of which they had the most money to spend. I don't really see how that benefited them. I, I see what you're saying. And it, it you're right, it, it makes for a, a much less interesting group to cover when if they do end up valuing things the same as everybody else. I thought uh, Swanson and Toussaint were really good draft picks. In the, in the first <laughs> round. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny the years I've covered the team, like I remember when Josh Burns was the GM, I could almost think along with some of the transactions. Like I could, I could kind of anticipate what free agents they might be interested in, what free agents they might not be. And, you know, the last couple, but, you know, this one especially, like I, I had no idea. I mean, I thought like last offseason they were going to, I thought John Lackey made the most sense. You know, I, I thought like they would try to get like a, a Mike Leak or a John lackey or some second tier starting pitcher on the trade market and it definitely kept me on my toes as a reporter i don't i don't know if it's going to be uh it's going to be any different starting this offseason or not yeah i guess between the towers front office and the stewart larusa front office you've definitely covered two of the most <laughs> talkative teams in recent memory which i guess is good for you they're, they're pretty quotable <laughs> is that more but... fun to, to cover a dysfunctional front office than a well i mean i, I don't know necessarily that tower group was dysfunctional i mean they he said things that you probably wouldn't want you know someone saying going on the radio <laughs> yeah, talking about enough. head hunting and, yeah. and yeah. stuff like that but i i don't know i guess as a beat guy you're kind of a little afraid when guys like that are you know that talkative because you, you never you never really know what they're gonna say <laughs> and you, you never know like oh gosh what's nightingale gonna get out of stew today but you know i i think it's definitely a lot more fun because uh you can ask them questions that you know you normally wouldn't even think about asking because you just know you're not going to get a good answer they're going to give you some kind of basic <laughs> general general response but these guys it was it was always interesting with with both Stewart and, and Towers you never you never were sure whether they were going to map out their offseason plans for you um, <laughs> or say something kind of controversial yeah it can come back to bite you definitely if I mean there are definitely some inadvisable things like the, the comments Larissa made about Shelby Miller and then there are comments where you know they would say specific win totals that they were expecting or things or like that or, and then, uh, Tony going into the broadcast booth in Pittsburgh. <laughs> that too. Yeah. So there's it's, it's been an eventful couple of years, guys. Yeah, so <laughs> it would be it'd be hard to top. Yeah, I'd be sort of sorry if there were no front offices left like this and just, you know, everyone clammed up whenever reporters were around or just said the most bland, jargon-filled comments they could come up with. That would be unfortunate for us, but maybe better for Diamondbacks fans. So, <laughs> Someone else will do it, though. There's always yeah, one. Yeah, you'd, you'd hope so. There's always one. <laughs> but the uh, I guess the legacy of this front office is that chief baseball officer is now a term yes. that other teams are using because now the, the twins have a chief baseball officer. So that at least will live on. Hey, you gotta, you gotta give these guys credit. They're, uh, they're forward thinking in some ways. I mean, they were the first group to take a guy with almost no coaching experience and make him a manager. And, and yeah. after AJ Hinch, everybody was doing it and, and we'll see, maybe there'll be a lot more chief baseball officers from now on. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even ask you about Chip Hale. He's just sort of overshadowed by the 
the other people involved here and the other personalities involved here? I mean, was he just sort of a, a fall guy? Or That's kind of what it felt like to me. Yeah, yeah, they didn't really give us... There was one point where someone asked a question about Chip, didn't get a very good answer, kind of asked a follow-up, didn't get a very good answer, and then asked the third one. And they just really wouldn't... I, I don't know, maybe they didn't want to talk badly about the guy, which I, I respect, but we didn't really get a very good reason for why he's not coming back. And, and I mean, look, if you're going to clean house and you know, you're going to hire a new GM, maybe they just didn't want to have that guy be saddled with with someone maybe they just wanted uh, that gm to be able to make his own his own decisions which which is respectful in and of itself all right well dave stewart true to his quotable form has said that he has better things to do than be the diamondbacks general manager so i guess that means we all have better things to do than to talk about his time as diamondbacks general manager as the rest of this soap opera plays out you can follow nick's writing and reporting at azcentral.com and you can also find him on twitter at nick picoro nick thanks a lot my pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. That will do it for today. Thanks to Nick Picoro. Thanks to Ron Washington, who will reportedly be interviewing for the Braves managerial position this week. That's the Ringer MLB bump in action. Thanks also to Michael Bauman. And thanks to you for listening. If you like what you've been hearing, we hope you'll consider subscribing to the show and leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. Enjoy the wildcard games. We will be back with another episode of the Ringer MLB show later this week. 